Is noticing a woman is beautiful the same as lusting after her? It's Sheila from the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum podcast, and we are going to tackle something a little bit controversial in the church today. I am so glad that you've joined me for this podcast, the place where we always like to talk about marriage and all things sex in the Christian church, because marriage is supposed to be a passionate adventure and not just a big to-do list. And often we've created all these rules around marriage and sex, which make everything just so hard. So today we're going to put some common sense to this question of what exactly is lust? Because I honestly think the way that we frame lust in the church hurts men, it hurts women, it hurts the church, it hurts our witness, it hurts marriages. It's just plain hurtful. And so let's look at it in a different way. I've written about this in a variety of different blog posts, but I want to summarize some of the arguments and put them together in just a new cohesive way today. And by the way, I will link to those articles in the description um, of this podcast. So you can just click on that link and you will find lots of extras uh, to go along with this. We can go on some rabbit trails, but here we go. There are a whole host of Christian materials and books that are trying to help men defeat lust which they call every man's battle. Um, And the way that this is supposed to happen is that men need to learn to bounce their eyes. So if they see a woman and she may trigger lust, they need to learn to bounce their eyes so they don't look at any particular body part and they're not tempted. I find this really problematic for all kinds of reasons. But one of them is that it makes men hyper vigilant because they need to always be watching where their eyes go, which means they go through life always worrying that they are going to see something which is going to cause them to lust. And so I want us to deconstruct a couple of words today. Let's talk about the words see and the word look because those are two very different words. And then let's talk about the word notice and the word lust, because those are two very different words too. All right, so the idea that we have is that if you see that a woman is beautiful or that she has particularly nice breasts or she has a nice bottom or whatever it might be, these thoughts may then lead to you imagining her naked or imagining doing something sexual with her, which turns into lust. And so the first step is noticing that she is beautiful or that she has nice body parts. And so if you notice these things, you must be lusting. But do we believe that a man can notice a woman is beautiful or is nicely shaped, but then do absolutely nothing else with that information? I get the impression from a lot of Christian churches that a lot of people would say no, but I absolutely definitely say yes. And it comes down to the definition of lust. I mean, Jesus didn't think that all women were ugly. Jesus noticed that some women were beautiful, but he never sinned. So noticing is not the same as lusting. And here's how Jesus talked about lust. In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, verses 27 and 28, he said, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, a couple of things here. It does not say that anyone who sees a woman has committed adultery. It says that a man who looks with lust has committed adultery. Seeing is noticing and seeing is not wrong. Seeing is inevitable. 
Looking, however, is a deliberate action. But looking in and of itself is also not wrong. Jesus says that who, whoever looks at a woman with lust, so it is how you are going about looking at her. It's not that a guy sees that is wrong. It's not even that he looks. It's, it's that he looks with a specific purpose to ogle her and to fantasize about her. The idea that men can't do this, that men are incapable of noticing, but then not letting it go any further, actually contributes to the issue of lust. Because if we believe that men are incapable of being in the presence of a good-looking woman without lusting, then women become dangerous. You see, if there is absolutely nothing he can do to avoid lust, other than bounce his eyes and be hypervigilant, then women are always the problem. Women become a problem. Women become dangerous. And that puts this huge break between the sexes where women and men can no longer treat each other like human beings. In fact, what you've done is you've objectified women because you've said, he cannot be in the presence of a beautiful woman without lusting, which means he is incapable of seeing her as a whole person. And that's just simply false. It's not true. It's unbiblical. And it's completely the opposite of how Jesus acted and how Paul then modeled that we should act in the early church. And there have been a whole raft of psychological studies that have been looking at this concept of how men are visually stimulated and how lust actually works. And a couple that are really cool for what we're talking about today. So I'm actually going to bring my daughter, Rebecca, on right now because she's a psychology grad. She's looked at all this stuff inside and out. And I want her to explain one of those studies in particular because I think it's really cool. So, okay, Becca, go for it. All right. So there's one particular study that we wanted to really look at where these researchers took groups groups of people, both men and women, and they showed them an image of either a man or a woman. Then what they did was they showed them two images side by side. One was the original image and one was slightly altered. Whether they made the chest a little bit wider or they made the thighs a little bit rounder or the waist a little bit smaller. And they would ask the participants which one was the altered versus the original image and what had been changed. Okay. So which of these images is not like the exactly. other? Okay. Yeah. And what they found was that both men and women did a really bad job when it came to men. They couldn't tell the difference. They weren't that secure on their answers. They didn't necessarily choose the right thing. We just weren't very good at noticing when the man's picture had been altered. But both okay. men and women were really good at honing in on what had been changed for the woman's picture. Both men and women notice when the boobs are a bit bigger. They notice when the mm -hmm. waist was a bit smaller. They notice when the arms are a little bit longer. And they could pinpoint what it was that had been changed. Wow. So it, was, it wasn't just guys. No, it was women too. No, it was women as well. And what they concluded from this is that there are two different kinds of processing. And we already knew this. But there are two different kinds of processing that we do. Global processing and local processing. Okay. Mm -hmm. Really, the difference is global processing is seeing the forest and local processing is seeing the trees. Okay. When we look at men, we tend to do global processing. We look at the whole picture. We look at the entire person. We see the forest. We see the forest. Exactly. When we look at women, however, we don't see a woman as much as we see arms and legs and boobs and a butt and a neck and a face and a stomach. 
So she's a collection of body Exactly. Parts. And this isn't just a men thing. This is women too. So our culture as a whole does Our this. culture as a whole has been primed to see women as body parts and men as a whole. Now you might be saying, well, that's a bit much to bring from that. Maybe there's just a biological instinct that makes us automatically look at women one way and men the other. But the thing is, these researchers also wanted to see if that was the case. And so what they did next mm-hmm. was they showed groups of people two pictures one would be like uh, the letter h made up of a mosaic of tiny letter t's okay and they would tell them different things they would ask the participants what is the big letter or they would ask what are the smaller letters or something along those lines they would ask them to focus on either what were the letters making or what was the picture made of okay and what they found was when they asked people to do that global processing which was look at the h that's made out of the t's don't look at the t's You know, what is the Mm -hmm. bigger picture of? They were Mm -hmm. then not very good at seeing the differences in the women either. Because they had started to do global processing for the women too. Okay, so in other words, it's how we are primed. Exactly. It's when we've told our brains, you need to look at the overall picture, not the individual parts. We actually Mm -hmm. carry that out to not just looking at, you know, whether it's mosaics made of a different picture. We look at kind of everything that we're doing for the next little bit, we look in that light. Now, all priming kind of wears off after a while if it's really minor like that, but it really Mm -hmm. shows that these kinds of natural inclinations to look at women as a collection of body parts and to look at men as a whole being, it means we likely can actually train ourselves to look at women in a similar way to how we look at men. We just might need to remind ourselves first. One, One more thing though. Now, I know a lot of people may look at this and automatically think that this means sexual attraction, right? So because we look at women, because men look at women as a collection of body parts and they need to be retrained to look at women as a whole being, it means that men naturally lust after women need to be trained not to. But remember, women do this too. And Mm -hmm. when we look at pictures of women, this isn't the only study that's found it. Both men and women focus on breasts and butt and waist and body parts for women than they do for men. And so unless we believe that all women are bisexual or else lesbians, (laughs) this is not necessarily an issue of sexual attraction. This is about what are our brains naturally focusing on. And that's what we mean by that whole noticing is not lusting thing as well. Right. Because it's about where are we putting our brains focus and what are we doing with that focus? But the focus automatically doesn't mean that it's sinful. It just means that it might be less healthy than how we see the other sex. So when you see the whole person, you don't sexualize as much. Okay. Now, keep that fact in mind, because I think that this is the key to unlocking the lust problem in churches. What we have done in our church is we've said lust is so much of a problem because men may lust it at the drop of a hat and they need to bounce their eyes, that they see women as dangerous, they, they keep men and women separate so that men um, aren't going to be tempted by women. We do things by gender so much in church. But in doing so, we're preventing the one major way we have of actually combating lust, which is helping men see women as whole people. Jesus scandalized the disciples with the way that he treated women. Do you remember the story in John 4 where he talks to the Samaritan woman at the well? 
He talks to her for a long time. They are all by themselves. She came out to get water. There was no one else around, and they had this nice chat. Uh, and it was a very personal chat. It was actually a chat basically about her sex life. And then when the disciples found this, they were absolutely aghast. Like, what was he doing talking to this woman? But this woman experienced him as being one of the first men who ever treated her like a whole person. And she went back to town and she told everybody about it. He didn't demean her. He actually went against cultural conventions and talked to her, even though she was considered a sinful person. Even though other people tended to sexualize her, he did not. Similarly, if you look at his relationship with Mary and Martha, the Bible tells us that he loved them. He had direct conversations with them, especially in um, John chapter 11, right after uh, Lazarus has died and he comes and before he's raised Lazarus from the dead, he talks to them about how deeply they are grieving and about what they're going through. He treats them like real people. The best way that we can combat lust is to help men see women as people. And that can't happen if churches go out of their way to divide everything by the sexes. It can't happen if women's opinions are never asked about, but women are only ever relegated to the kitchen or the nursery. When we think of women as the other or as dangerous, women become scary. And we create these two separate worlds. And then it's no wonder that all these guys struggle with lust because they're not used to seeing women as people. And it also pits women against women. You know, I was tweeting about this recently. And I said this on Twitter. One very dangerous teaching common in the Christian church is that noticing a woman is beautiful is lusting after her or will inevitably lead to lust. It makes men either hypervigilant or else defeated since lust is unavoidable. And it makes women paranoid of other women because every woman is there ready to steal your husband's att sexual attention. And one woman tweeted back this and I thought it was a really interesting statement. She says, it's easier to control a certain population when they are isolated from each other. The empowering nature of female friendships is dangerous to unbiblical hierarchical theologies. Women against women is one of the best ways to prevent iron sharpening iron. And that's what I'm seeing. Our churches are so focused on, you know, separating men and women that what we actually end up doing is pitting women against women. And so now it's difficult to find good relationships with anybody. And that is just not what Paul and Jesus modeled. Jesus treated women like whole people. Paul said, greet one another with a holy kiss. And then he called so many women his fellow workers. He had completely platonic relationships with women that he valued and he treated them seriously. You know, this is kind of cool, but a full 34% of the people that Paul mentions by name in Romans 16 are women. Romans 16 is the last uh, chapter of that book, and he's, it's his big uh, book of greetings where he is saying, you know, say hi to this person and thank you to this person and tell this person I'm remembering them. Marg uh, Mausko, I don't even know how to say her name, isn't that awful? And I've actually met her in person in Australia, but she writes a great blog about um, women in the Bible. And she said this about Romans 16. 
Of the 29 people mentioned, 10 are women. But what is especially interesting, however, is that seven of the 10 women are described in terms of their ministry, Phoebe, Prisca, Mary, Junia, Tryphena, Tryphosa, and Persis. By comparison, only three men are described in terms of their ministry, Aquila, Adronicus, and Urbanus, and two of these men are ministering alongside a female partner, Aquila with Prisca and Adronicus with Junia. These are numbers worth remembering. And they are. If your pastor were to write a book or write a letter about the people who are his fellow workers, would 34% of those mentioned be women? I worry that they're not. And I think this is one of the big problems that we have with lust is because we don't see women as whole people. Noticing is not lusting. You can have platonic relationships with women. You know, the way that Paul kept things platonic was by focusing on women's giftings and what they had to contribute to the kingdom of God. You know, what is the Holy Spirit doing in their lives and how are they contributing? Do our churches look like that today? Are we focusing on women as fellow workers in the gospel as Paul did? Or are we focusing on women as being dangerous to men? Are we seeing women as fully alive in Christ? Or are we seeing them just as sexual partners and extensions of men? If we want to get over lust, we need to see women as whole people. No more bouncing the eyes. No more being scared to be with a woman. But just looking at her and talking to her the way Jesus did and valuing her and realizing that she is a real person with opinions and attitudes. Studies show that's how you avoid lust, by seeing her as a whole person. Let's stop with this idea that if you notice a woman is beautiful, it will inevitably lead to lust. And so you must never be in the presence of a woman or you must train yourself not to notice women because women are dangerous. No, women are fully part of the kingdom of God and, there's, and we are supposed to work alongside men. You know, I read a book recently that made me sad because it was talking about how all men battle lust and it was walking you through the average day in the life of a man who is just trying to be pure and how he is just so very stressed at business meetings because some woman might come to that business meeting and sometimes she has her shirt unbuttoned a little bit too much. And how everywhere he goes, there are billboards with women who are scantily clad. And how is he ever going to maintain his purity? And his whole life is just one big stressful mess. And I'm not doubting that that is true. Because I think for a lot of men, life is one big stressful mess. Because they are trying so hard to honor their wives. And they're trying so hard to not lust but everywhere they look, women's body parts are there, and they, they just feel like they can't help seeing it. But I asked my husband if that's how he feels. And he said, no, he never gets nervous like that. Life is not stressful. And he works in almost an entirely female environment. Um, the people that he is training are almost entirely female. All of his colleagues are almost entirely female. And you know what? He just values them as people. And when you value them as people, and when you're not scared of them, when you realize that noticing a woman is beautiful, you can notice that and then do absolutely nothing else with that information. It is such a freeing thing. That is how we're supposed to live in the Christian life, is in freedom, seeing people as people, not as objects. 
And I want to encourage us to start talking about that instead of all of this conversation about how every man lusts and how he needs to be careful or else women will be dangerous. Women are not dangerous. We are whole people. And when men see us that way, the lust battle will be largely won. Are you part of the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum community? Sign up for my emails and you'll get weekly Friday updates with behind-the-scenes pictures and info, exclusive video content, stuff I'm wrestling with, and more. You'll also get access to our free resource library with over 25 marriage and parenting freebies, my free five-day sex pep talk, and more. Sign up on the homepage at tolovehonorandvacuum.com. This whole noticing is lusting thing is so dangerous for men because it makes them feel guilty for things that aren't actually sins and it makes them hypervigilant. But it's also so damaging for women because it makes us feel like we're dangerous and it just cuts the genders off. So I have brought Rebecca and Connor on to to join us in this discussion. Rebecca's my daughter and Connor is her husband. Hey there. Hi. Hello. And I want I want to address something which always comes up without fail whenever I talk about lust, which is the modesty issue, because that's always the other side of it. Well, Sheila, you can say that the noticing is not lusting, but we have to remember that women should still be careful what they wear. And uh, we had that discussion on the blog this week on my post about 10 things that I wish pastors would listen to female sex bloggers about and say more in their in their sermons. Um, and then I actually added two more after that, so it ended up being 12. But, but one of them was this noticing is not lusting idea. And some commenters took... Uh, took off with that in the comments and we inevitably got the yoga pants question which comes up a lot and the what do you do if people come to church dressed really immodestly so i want to throw those out there and let's talk yoga pants all right so i was actually having a conversation about this with one of my friends just recently uh one of my friends who i do accountability with and we were talking about this whole noticing is lusting this whole bounce your eyes thing and there was a discussion about the feelings we can have towards the general way that people tend to present themselves in a modern society, you know, in terms of the clothing trends that you're seeing. Yoga pants being one of them, uh, skimpy tops being another one. And my friend was expressing some of the frustration that he was experiencing because while he didn't blame women for the fact that he might want to look at them, and he, he, did, he did blame himself and was trying to work on that himself, but he did feel like, come on, could you make it a little bit easier for us and so we had a good conversation about that and one of the things that i was saying to him is that we're supposed to be in the world as christians but not of the world and so i think it's very important to separate our own personal struggles and our own personal sins from societal issues and to be able to keep those two things very differently because the thing is when you don't separate the two what can happen is you can confuse your own struggles as a man and the own issues that you have with not lusting and not, uh, not noticing other people in a lustful way. You can start to conflate and confuse that with the actions that they're taking or with the society as a whole. But it doesn't matter how people in general are dressing. We're supposed to still hold ourselves to the same standard. Mm. And so mm-hmm. the way that that has played out for me is that, you know, in terms of this whole bounce your eyes debate, I don't find that to be very helpful because that's just addressing a behavior, not a cognition. Right. And the cognition, the mental process that I think you need to have, regardless of where society is, is 
you can recognize, I can recognize that someone is attractive. If I'm, if I'm on the bus and someone steps onto the bus, because I tend to notice the environment around me, I will notice them coming onto the bus and I might observe they're quite attractive. And then the mental process that takes place in my head is I notice if my eyes are being drawn to them, if there's that temptation to look a little bit longer, I say, well, no, I'm married. I have a wife. I don't need to be looking at her. There isn't a reason for me to be looking at her. There are other things for me to notice, to pay attention to right now. And it's not so much that I am bouncing my eyes because I'm afraid of her, but more that I am confirming to myself that there are more important things that I could be thinking about, that I could be focusing on. That isn't something I need to do. Exactly. And I, and I just want to point out, too, from what you're saying, is that in that moment when you decided... I'm not going to focus on that. You weren't sinning already. No. Because a lot of people equate being sexually attracted to someone or thinking they're pretty with, well, I've already mentally cheated on my spouse. Yeah, as if once we're married, we can never find anyone else attractive. And that just doesn't happen. That's not the way we're made. Yeah, because the problem is when we notice someone's attractive, we often don't notice like, oh, they look pretty. We, like, you're often going to notice, oh, she's got nice breasts. You know, right. or you're going to notice she's got a great figure, right? And those things in and of themselves are not necessarily lust. Because then you can then be like, okay, and I can move on from that. And you can move on from it before it becomes lustful, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what the problem is because we have become so scared of the idea of slipping into lust. I think that we've started to think that even noticing that people have organs and body parts is wrong. It's the equivalent of, you know, that idea that if you might accidentally break a law, we're going to put other laws in place to make sure you don't do anything that might lead to you breaking the law. It's it's the same kind of mentality, I think. Yeah, and so this, this mental process that we have before we're sinning or anything and we're just noticing and we're deciding what to do in that moment... Uh, I've adopted personally a stance of what I would call intentional disinterest because we're supposed to hold our thoughts accountable to God. It doesn't mean running away from the thoughts like when you bounce your eyes or running away from the behaviors, being afraid to engage with them. It means taking your thoughts accountable. If you don't have a problematic thought, that's okay. If you do have a thought that you think might lead somewhere problematic, then you acknowledge it, you address it, and you move on. Uh, If I notice myself being tempted to look a little bit longer than I might want to, not in a sinful temptation kind of way, but just in the natural ways our eyes tend to be attracted, I become really intentional with myself and say, well, how disinterested can I be? How little can I allow this to affect me? (laughs) how, How disinterested can I be that there is an attractive woman sitting across the bus, not being afraid of her, not... Not trying not to think about the pink elephant, mm-hmm. but just saying, how disengaged can I be from this? And now that I'm disengaging from this because it's, it shouldn't be interesting to me, it shouldn't be relevant to me, what are other things that I can be interested in right now? What are other things I can be thinking of? And I think it's important, too, to understand that like this idea of just choosing to not focus on that is so important in professional settings, too. And I think in this whole modesty debate, we keep on forgetting that there are men in professions where you deal with really attractive women in relatively skimpy clothing on a regular basis, and we expect them not to sexually objectify us. 
That's right. Like, like I, I said in a comment, like, you know, when I was going to Good Life for a while, I, I got a couple free... It's a fitness club. It's a fitness club Oh, it's a Canadian fitness Canada. club. Yeah, it's one of the biggest Maybe ones. it's in America, too. No, I don't know, Canada, but anyway. Anyway, okay. but you got a couple free, like, um, personal training sessions, and I had this, like, 20-year-old, fresh-out-of-college personal trainer who was working with me, and, like, I was mainly doing glute work, Okay. Like, let's just be honest here. We're doing a lot of squats. I am expecting him not to be leering when he's teaching me how to do good form during squats, despite the fact that we're all wearing spandex, right? Right. Like, that's expected. And so if I can expect a 20-year-old, hormone-filled, like, non-Christian dude who is a personal trainer to not treat me like an object and to not be lusting after me while I go there because I need to believe that in order to feel safe when I go there. And he was amazing and professional, loved him. Then why can't we expect the same thing of like the 40-year-old men in our congregations? Yeah, and here's where I think that becomes really important uh, as individuals and as a broader society is because, like you said, there are just certain settings where these things are going to be more prevalent. And uh, I've had friends express to me that they're afraid to go to places like the beach because there are so many scantily clad women out there in two-piece bathing suits and two-piece bikinis. Uh, and they express that they're afraid to go to the beach and you know sometimes they'll express disdain about the fact that you know we are where we are as a society, that that's how people are dressing there and it makes the world a, a scary place for men who are trying not to lust. And that's where I think it's really important to have this separation because you should be able to go to the beach. And yes, you can say that you personally think that the way that society currently treats the female body uh, is not a good thing. It's okay to think that, but you need to be able to work on that or address that separately from yourself. Because I can say, you know, maybe I do think people at the beach are too scantily clad. I'm not saying or not saying that. But I should still be able to go to the beach and deal with the log in my own eye separately from addressing the spec in society's eye. Yeah. No, I really like that because I think I think so often what we in the church try to do is we say lust is a problem, so we need to change the world. We need to change how everyone else's dresses. We need to change how everyone else dresses instead of saying, why don't we just change our thought life? Yeah, and it's not saying those things don't need to be changed, but it's saying they don't need to be changed in conjunction with the changes you yourself are making. You're, respons- you're accountable to yourself. Yeah, and to God yeah. and and everybody like like because yeah like like for a guy to not be able to go to the beach that deprives his family of a whole lot of stuff. It does. Like that de- deprives his family of a whole lot of fun in the summer, um, and I've talked about that in the blog as well before too. Like that's a real problem, and you should be able to not lust. And I, I think another issue that, that the three of us have talked about before, um, not on the podcast, but just that Connor, you didn't grow up in the church. I did not. No. And I think that you actually have less of a problem with this than some of your friends who did grow up in the church. Yeah, I'd say so. Because you weren't taught that what women wore was dangerous. Well, like, even just the fact that a lot of people who grow up in the church don't grow up with, like, like we grow up in situations where our family members and the, the women in our lives 
all are focused so much on dressing modestly and it's such a, a constant conversation about like oh is this too revealing uh, or like oh I'm so sorry like I didn't mean to accidentally flash you there like there's like there's there's all sorts of like if everything is and by flashing it's like you know you accidentally got a tiny bit of cleavage not an actual flash just Sorry, just to just to clarify, it's like you know your shirt went down an extra inch than expected. Um, Not like there's actual boobs in the wind. Um, But the thing is, like there's there's a different conversation among a lot of religious households even versus like you know being used to being in a family where people just kind of dress normally according to Mm -hmm. cultural standards. Like, you know, I'm sorry, but bikinis quite aren't quite as scary when you've seen your grandma and your mum wear them. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, they're scary in a different way. But yeah, and I mean, there there are pro- there are different problems that I think you can fall into uh, coming from an atheistic perspective. You know, like for example, you might not really see objectifying women as a problem. But I think, yeah, coming from that perspective of what another person wears is their choice. How I respond to what they're wearing is my choice. And then when I moved from that into a Christian setting, where I'm recognizing what thoughts are harmful, what thoughts are helpful. Uh, I think it was easier for me than for some of my friends raised in the church to say, okay, what they're wearing is what they're wearing. How I respond is how I respond that I'm going to respond in a healthy way. Yeah, and I I actually find that really indicting Mm -hmm. of the church culture. But my husband came to Christ late in his teens too. He was 19 years old and his story is the same. Mm-hmm. You know, he had an easier time with a lot of this stuff than the boys who grew up in the church. And I think a lot of that is the way that we talk about modesty. So I want to get to the one other issue um, uh, that we often get in regards to this, which is what do you do if there's a young woman who comes into church and she's dressed really scantily clad, whatever, whatever it is that she's wearing. And I've had this on the radio. Someone asked me this once. Um, we've had it on the blog. Like it's, it, it, it always comes up. And I find this so strange because why are we so worried about what this woman is wearing? And why are we not more worried about ministering to her? Um, and they always bring up the weaker brother argument, you know, like how you don't want to be a stumbling block and how do we tell her that she's being a stumbling block. But if you read that passage about the stumbling block, if you look at how Paul is talking about the weaker brother, he means the person who is, whose faith is being damaged or could be damaged by the way you're acting. And the we, the one who is weaker in the faith is the one that we're supposed to be concerned mm-hmm. about. And the woman who is searching, who is coming into your church scantily clad, she's the one you're supposed to be concerned about. Not the 45-year-old elder who might lust after her because of how she's what she's wearing. And if you're going to a church where 45-year-old elders are lusting after teenage girls who are scantily clad, get into a different church. <laughs> or find different elders. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so Becca, what would you say like to the to the girl... Or to the issue of there's a girl who is wearing something highly revealing in church. Honestly, I think it comes down to just understanding that people, how people present themselves to the world is often a very direct relationship to how they feel about themselves, right? We've talked about that before in the Fight the Frump series, right? Like if you, if you, Mm -hmm. you want to give this message that like, you know, I am worthy of your respect, You know, and so, and I'm worthy of my own respect. And that's why, like, when you get dressed in the morning, don't put on a holy t-shirt with, like, the armpit ripped out and sweatpants. You you can give yourself one message, and if you get out of bed and put on, like, a nice top and jeans, you can give yourself another message. It can totally change change your day, right? 
So right. the thing is, when we look at this, like, if there's a little 15-year-old girl who's showing up at youth group, who's wearing booty shorts and a crop top, right? Like, we often immediately jump to, oh, well, she's trying to allure other boys, or she's trying to, you know, be sexy and all these things, but maybe she's just not really sure who she is, and she's trying to give out a confident persona that she's not really got. You know, yeah. cause I saw that mm-hmm. a lot among my friends in high school, especially cause, because all these comments are often about teenagers. They're not about 27-year-old women. They're about 16-year-olds, which is just a whole other level of creepy, right? Right. But mm-hmm. when I was in high school, I saw this a lot where a lot of times when girls dressed really provocatively in high school, it was an identity search. Mm-hmm. You know, much more than it was, I'm going to get that 50-year-old dude named Larry in the fourth row to look at my butt. That's not... The goal, you know, the goal is to say, like, I want to feel pretty. And this is what I see pretty people wearing. Yeah. And the first step on the path, you know, the first step in the way is Jesus, not dressing more modestly. Yeah, exactly. You now, the, and, obviously, and obviously there are some girls who they honestly do want the sexual attention. But if you got a 15-year-old wanting sexual attention, your first instinct shouldn't be protect the men, protect the adult men. Yeah. It should be, why on earth is there a 15-year-old girl seeking sexual attention? Yeah. And here's like, let's the, help yeah. her. <laughs> and here's the thing that I'll say about the men, is that if in this scenario you have a woman come to church and she's very scantily clad, and you have a man in your church who is being very tempted and being led to sin by this situation... Replay that same scenario without the woman there, there's still a problem. There's still the underlying problem of this man has to resolve his issues with the way that he looks at women. You know, whether or not she's there, the problem still remains. Right. Because the problem is in him. The problem is in him. And so I would say to men... Know your brothers, you know, come together in fellowship with them, talk about these things and know one another. I know which of my friends are struggling with these things. And so I can talk to them and I can help them work through them. And my brothers know what kinds of struggles I have and they can work with me and talk to me about those things and we can all build each other up. And in that kind of situation, if you have a brother who you know is going to be having a little bit of a problem with that, you can work with him, you can talk to him. You know, when this woman comes into your church and you can see what kind of help and support he needs. But his problem is going to be there regardless of whether or not there is a woman who is scantily clad. Because he's going to come across her somewhere else in the world. At the beach, at the mall, uh, in a business meeting. It's just going to happen. And I think also, when we see these women who come in, like... You have to understand, too, that a lot of this is generational. Like, a lot of these, the things that we get asked about, where it's like, she came to church wearing leggings. Like, mm-hmm. does she not understand how terrible that is? And I'm like, um, probably not. Because for the for anyone under the age of 30, leggings are quite normal. And mm-hmm. she, right. if she didn't grow up in a church culture, if she doesn't have adults of the of an older generation who are into this whole modesty Christian thing around her, she may honestly never have even thought of it. And so yep. if the first thing she hears when she comes to church is all these hushed whispers of wives telling their husbands, oh, look at that hussy over there in the leggings, or look away, sons, you know, in case... Or there are, there are articles out there of women who brag about how they and their sons move forward three rows so they could sit in front of all the girls wearing leggings so that her sons wouldn't be 
tempted by those girls like that kind of thing if you're a woman who's going to church for the first time in a while or who's weak in her faith or who's just searching and that's the welcome you get like that's horrendous and so i really do think that a lot of the times these things are very generational as well like i remember my um even just talking to some women in my family from older generations, and they're talking about all the mini skirts back in the 60s and stuff, most of which are actually shorter than what is fashionable Oh my now. gosh, when I look at what my mother and my aunt wore in like 1967, right, like, oh my yeah, gosh, I never let you guys wear skirts that short. Well, <laughs> and we honestly wouldn't have wanted to because they're not really in style anymore. And my grandmother, the minister's wife, knit them dresses that were that short yes. that I wouldn't let you guys wear without <laughs> leggings underneath. There's leggings again, yeah. but yeah. No, exactly. And that's what I mean is like as much as people might think, no, no matter what, leggings are always wrong or yoga pants are always wrong or two-piece bathing suits are always wrong. A lot of these things are generational and a lot of these things are cultural and you need to get into that headspace as well because like I said in a comment as well is we've had missionaries all throughout history, you know, well, the the history that we've had missionaries, I guess, like go to tribes where the women just don't wear tops and we're expecting that they're able to minister to these tribes, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the answer isn't to try to clothe the women before we tell them about Jesus in case the missionary might stumble into temptation and lust. No, the answer is to minister to these people and love them and show them who Jesus is exactly where they're at. You know? Exactly. So let me just say, in summary, if your first concern when a scantily clad woman walks into church is how can you get her to not dress that way, your first concern is off. Mm -hmm. Because Jesus sees the whole person, and Jesus wants to make sure that she's welcomed there. And so let's just stop treating women like they're dangerous and like they're body parts, and let's start seeing people as whole people. And I think that really is the way to get around this lust problem and get back to creating a truly uh, healthy community and the body of Christ. And that's all we have for today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And as always, make sure to check out the podcast description for a link for today's blog post, which has lots of additional resources and other materials that you can read to talk more about this subject. Have a wonderful week, guys, and we'll see you later.